0: Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, chapter 6, verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the word of the Lord. May add his blessings to our hearing of it. When we consider this single verse, we are coming in on the end of a very heated argument. One-sided, but very heated. In other letters of Paul, at the end we see greetings to friends and co-laborers. We read offers of encouragement and words of comfort, notes of thankfulness and appreciation, but not so much here. In this first reflection on the cross, a literary reflection, we will look at this divisive statement of Paul in its immediate context. What has compelled him to be so deliberative, so emphatic? He yells through the written word. The visual here, if you want to think about it, is the howler card that Ron Weasley receives in Harry Potter. That is the letter to the Galatians. (laughs) What were you thinking? Why were you so foolish? Why have you allowed yourselves to be led astray? He's using rhetorical one-upsmanship to take on, to contend, to persuade the Galatians to turn back. At the beginning, he writes, but, to contrast what has just come before. And what has just come before is a description of the faction that has troubled the Galatian believers, the circumcision faction. The cir- circumcision party, they've laid on conditions to the gospel. They have preached a gospel plus. How would they do such a thing? If you'll forgive the pun, Paul says they do it to save their own skins. <laughs> uh, He writes a little bit right before our, our verse here, speaking of this party, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. These Judaizers are not foolish, although Paul says the Galatians are in fact foolish for listening to them. They know the cross is a reproach, and it's an offense, this unlucky tree, as an ancient writer called it, and even more so a God who would die a criminal's death on that unlucky tree. How shameful. Therefore, they seek to cover its offense in something their world at least recognized, while odd, the physical requirements of the Jewish religion. They are seeking to cover the scandal of the cross using recognized religious devotion. Seeking to flee the shame of the cross, they substitute something for it. They boast in a covenant sign, a sign that is good in and of itself, except that they are substituting the sign for the person and the reality the sign pointed to. It's like this. It's like going to one of our national treasures. Uh, Say the Grand Canyon. You make the long trip there and you pull up at the entrance and you go no further. You don't go to see the Grand Canyon. You don't go up to the rim. You don't go down into the Grand Canyon. You just stop there where the sign is. People say, well, aren't you gonna go see the Grand Canyon? Nah, I'm just gonna sit here and look at this sign. Maybe get some selfies with the sign. (laughs) Ludicrous. It's ridiculous. And that's what they're doing. Right now, it would be so easy to be outraged if we did not all do the same thing. For us, maybe it's a consistent quiet time or works of mercy or Bible knowledge. I work in a seminary. Believe me, I see that idol a lot. (laughs) You get the picture. You get the picture. There's always a pull to substitute something that's outwardly acceptable for the shame of the cross. So we won't be as outraged, but don't worry because Paul is plenty outraged. He screams, may it never be. May it never be. Paul says, I cannot stand the reproach, the shame The failure if I substitute the shadow for the reality. Now, circumcision is a bloody sign because it pointed to the blood needed. The Old Testament is dripping with blood. Circumcision, Passover, sacrifices. It's a horror story. Not because the God of the Old Testament was the war God or the mean God. It's because he's the promising God, the communicating God, the pointing God. The blood was needed to communicate man's moral guilt and his moral state accurately and to point to the removal of that guilt by the only way possible, a bloody, perfect sacrifice by God's only Son. So circumcision was a cleansing, a removal Because a cleansing of our sin is needed. A removal of our moral guilt is needed. And that can only come through the cross. There's no way Paul is going to boast in circumcision or food laws or you fill in the good thing that you and I have thought would put God in our debt and turn his frown upside down. Not only is it just ridiculous, it is also offensive. Because everything we try to add to the gospel is a diminishment of what our Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. Thus, Paul is apoplectic that the Galatians have been led astray. They are just not getting it. We are just not getting it. The cross is a cosmic game changer. As he writes before in chapter 4, verse 3, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But with the coming of Jesus and his obedient death on the cross, Paul can write, through which the world has been crucified to me. As an announcement of his emancipation and ours, those chains have been dealt with decisively in the cross. Paul is saying, don't be an Otis. Remember Otis? Otis was uh, the lovable local inebriate on the Andy Griffith show. And when he would overindulge, as he was wont to do, he would go dutifully incarcerate himself. <laughs> so Paul's saying, don't be an Otis. Don't put yourself back in bondage. You have been released. Don't submit to chains that the Lord himself has struck off of you. Now, the crucifixion, though, has a dual result in the world. It frees us from the bondage the world would have us under. But at the same time, Paul writes, and I to the world. While the world and its power is a dead thing to the person that's in the gospel, that identification carries a price. The world looks on us with the shaming and scorn that it reserves for the cross and for Jesus. It's that identification, that absolutely necessary identification, that occasions Paul to warn in verse 17, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. If you are to throw off the slavery to elemental things of this world, of this age, and take on those things that belong to heaven, that belong to the next age, then the sufferings of Christ are mandatory. We cannot take just the things that are pleasing, that cause no offense. Notice that Paul did not say, I boast in the great ethical teachings of Jesus, or I boast in the compassion of Christ. Again, those are all good things. We should practice the ethics of the kingdom like those found in the Sermon on the Mount. You should show compassion to the marginalized, the oppressed, the hurting, but doing so will not save you. It's just your duty. The world will applaud you, but God won't. You have to take on Christ, his sufferings, his cross. God needs to look at you and see you washed in the blood of the Lamb. Then you will be justified. Then you will be glorified. Rhetorically speaking, this is Paul's summation, his closing argument. This is the decision before them and before us. Glory in those things of the world, and God will not glory in you. Glory in his son and his sufferings for your sake, and God will glory in you. The word profound is just too little a word for this. It does not even begin to do justice to the cross, to the atonement. We can't even get our hands around the mystery of self-sacrificial love for traitors and rebels. But for a theological reflection Maybe one of the best ways that we can begin to comprehend the nature of this earth-shaking, time-splitting event is to use the lens of the threefold office of Christ. Using this gaze, we can see the wisdom of God displayed in his plan for our salvation. We will see Christ lifted up, the true Adam, the true Israel, and our true Savior who provides all. That is lacking in us i'd like to turn to the shorter catechism to frame this visual now i'm always very humbled when i go to the shorter catechism because if you don't know this it was written for children (laughs) their instruction and also i've read in another ancient document for children and those that are ignorant (laughs) and so i read it and i go wow i have so much to learn or be reminded of i feel a little bit i don't feel a little bit i feel very humbled Question 23 of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what offices does Christ fill as our Redeemer? And the answer is, Christ as our Redeemer fills the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king in his states both of humiliation and exaltation. Specifically, we'll be examining Christ's humiliation on the cross, but we will see exaltation was present even in the humiliation of the cross. So the first office to be considered is the prophetic office of Christ. The next question in the Catechism, number 24, how does Christ fill the office of a prophet? Answer, Christ fills the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Now, Christ himself is a revelation, He is the word of God in flesh. His coming into the world revealed things that could not be known to man without him. Now, two weeks ago, Steve Brown was here and he preached on John 17. And in that high priestly prayer, Jesus, speaking to the father of the disciples, testifies also about himself. He says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. Now, looking more specifically at just the work of Christ on the cross, how does it reveal the word of God for our salvation? One of the ways in which it reveals God's word for our salvation is by inspiring confirming and fulfilling the words of the prophets that came before. Now consider this. Consider the opening of the book of 1 Peter. He writes, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. As he predicted the sufferings of Christ... And the glories to follow now here we understand that christ sent the holy spirit to predict through the prophets his very own redemptive death according to god's plan his death on the cross was no tragic misunderstanding it was no plan b jesus was willingly on the way to the cross way before he even took on human flesh His face was set towards Jerusalem and that awful yet glorious hill from time eternal. Now, of course, we could also talk about the conversation on the road to Emmaus as recorded in Luke 24, or not knowing what Tim would do today, I also noted the transfiguration as another great example to see how Christ was intimately bound up with the work of the prophets in the Old Testament as pointed towards his work on the cross. All across Scripture, the story of our great suffering Redeemer is writ large. The cross demonstrates the mysterious wisdom of God for our salvation and makes known to us something so wonderful that it could never have been conceived of by our puny imaginations. Paul is constrained to only boast in the cross because it has been revealed by Christ to be the very wisdom of God for our salvation. To put anything in its place is to, to in effect, deny Christ and his revelation of the will of the Father. That's not a place we want to find ourselves, is it? Paul understood how ludicrous, from a godly perspective, it was to replace the cross with anything else. That's why he wrote in his first letter to the church in Corinth in the first chapter this. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is. Is stronger than men. British pastor Martin Lloyd Jones penned this wonderful observation on the cross as the wisdom and power of God. He wrote If you want to know anything about the eternal wisdom of God, look at the cross. That is why Paul says it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. There you see the mind of the eternal. Solving the eternal problem. How can God be just and at the same time forgive anybody? How can he bring these things together? Righteousness and mercy. Holiness and love. Is it possible? And the answer is on the cross. End quote." On the cross, Jesus, the very word of God, reveals to us how we are to be redeemed in him. Question 25, how does Christ fill the office of a priest? Christ fills the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself to God as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making constant intercession for us. There's so much biblical testimony to the atoning work of Christ in his priestly office. Christ mediating between God and man through his blood sacrifice. His is a sacrifice that is perfect and acceptable. An important distinction we see as early as Cain and Abel. Once we see here the sacrifice in Jesus that all other sacrifices point toward, then God's disregard for Cain's sacrifice is not inscrutable. It is just. and It is right. But I want to focus on the reconciliation as it relates to Paul's statement in Galatians 6.14. Reading that the world is crucified to Paul and he to the world could lead one to think of Paul as a stoic hermit, set off in purity from this foul world. But his boast is not separation, it is reunion, it is reconciliation. Consider the end of 2 Corinthians 5, let's look at the final three verses. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The world left to itself is at enmity with God and correspondingly is under the wrath of God. We must be reconciled to God, and that can only happen through Christ and his work on the cross. There is no other reconciliation available, not law-keeping, not devotion, not any of those things. We must be repatriated to God's camp, and that is why Paul's allegiance has changed through the crucifixion. And we must remember the exhortation that we received from Jason Van Bemmel last Sunday. We are now privileged as citizens of the kingdom to be ambassadors of the message of reconciliation. We are now honored to invite others to come and be crucified in Christ and freed from the bondage of the world and alive to the joys of the kingdom. Speaking of a kingdom... That presumes a king. And, of course, being Palm Sunday, it's a very appropriate. The Lord Jesus Christ coming in as a king of peace, riding on a donkey and not a war horse, as would have been—that was been a very different message, believe me, if he had come in on a war horse. <laughs> so, this is a great time to think about the kingship that Jesus has. Question 26. How does Christ fill the office of a king? Christ fills the office of a king in making us his willing subjects in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his enemy all his and our enemies. Through the cross we are repatriated to the kingdom of God. We are now his willing subjects as the catechism states. For this to happen King Jesus had to conquer his enemy And our enemy. The seed of the woman had to crush the head of the serpent. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 is as clear about this as it gets. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had, yeah, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Again, the amazing wisdom of God at work. Now, the devil, using the curse of death from the sin that he brought into the world through the temptation of Adam and Eve, had used that to hold the world in bondage. He thought he had played a winning hand. He had trumped God's design for man in his image. He had marred creation. He was running the table. But no, 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 no. It was through that very curse on account of sin that sin and the devil would be defeated. It was through death that death was defeated. What sweet justice is this? This is our boast. Now we can taunt along with Paul. "O oh death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Our champion has come. And now you are vanquished and powerless. The cross is a magnifying glass. It magnifies and glorifies Christ in his obedience to the Father, his abandoning love for us, and his power over sin and death. It is also a mirror, a mirror in which we can see ourselves truly as we really are. In this final reflection, I want to focus on three sobering, But life giving images it shows us. The cross provides us with a godly perspective on our sin, our suffering, and our death. In the perspective of the world, sin is such a trifling thing, a harsh, self justifying word, a flirtatious affair with idols of the eyes. We're meeting the lowest common denominator in our industry to level the playing field, all excused away. If it is the world on which our thoughts and affections rest, there will be a hardening of our hearts to the deceitfulness of sin. We absolutely must have the cross to awaken in us the horror and ugliness of sin. It is on the cross where the wrath of God for sin was poured out that sin gets its true measure. Let's consider another quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's speaking of the new new view of sin that a believer will have as he contemplates the cross. He writes, To sin now means that he is wounding love. He is not breaking law. He is wounding the love of the one who bought him with a price. He has a new conception of sin. He has new motives for living a holy life. And thank God, over and above all, he has got a new power whereby to do it. Keep the cross in front of you. Do not turn your eyes from it. When temptation comes creeping into your life, meditate upon the sufferings of Jesus for you. Remember these words from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf. And crucify again by God's powerful grace in your life the lusts of the world through the cross of Christ. Take that little brief snippet of scripture. Put it on a post-it note. Put it on your computer. Put it on the mirror in your master bath. Put it on your dashboard. Put it wherever sin is crouching, waiting to enter in. Let the blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel speak into your life. For while Abel's blood called out for a curse, the blood of Christ calls out for grace, since the curse has already been absorbed. In this world, you will suffer. That is a given. It's axiomatic. It is true of all mankind. So for the Christian, then the question is not, will I suffer, but rather, what will I suffer for? And how will I suffer? Will I choose to pursue righteousness and committed discipleship, even when the outcome of suffering is almost a certainty? Will my suffering be redemptive for me and for those around me? D.A. Carson, in his very helpful book, How Long, O Lord, Reflections on Suffering and Evil, which, by the way, I would add to your home library, provides this encouragement to those suffering. To focus on the cross of Christ not only grounds our faith on the God who is loving and faithful, but also gives us an an example in his sacrificial and redemptive love that we can never outstrip. When we suffer, there will sometimes be mystery. Will there also be faith? Yes. If our attention is focused more on the cross and on the God of the cross than on the suffering itself. Friends, what do you prize in this life? Christ prized you. And that is why he set his face toward Jerusalem. That is why he did not summon the angels at his beck and call. Before time began, you were prized and so he suffered. So when we suffer, we are being reminded to prize him, to set our eyes on him, to count the things of this world as rubbish in comparison to knowing him, and share in his sufferings that we will become more like him. As Mark mentioned, the pastoral search committee, I'm on that committee. There's lots of wonderful men called to the ministry of the Word being looked at. But right now, all we can say is only God knows who that next man will be. But I can tell you this. If he is not taking the opportunity week in and week out to prepare you to die as befits a follower of Christ, then the cross is not being preached. The gospel is not being preached. The invitation must be, come and die, that you should live. The death of the Christian is not a sudden occurrence. It is a lifetime endeavor. Every day, we are called to die to self, to die to sin, so that when physical death comes upon us, We are prepared. We are prepared from a lifetime of living in the hope of the glory to come and not the entertainments of the world. We are prepared from a lifetime of seeking our treasure in heaven and not the treasure that is destroyed by rust. We are prepared by a lifetime of embracing suffering for righteousness' sake instead of avoiding the hard-won wisdom produced by sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We prepare because Christ has prepared for us. Hear Jesus as he is recorded in John 14, verses 1-4. through 4. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way that I am going. As Jesus said, there was only one path to where he was going. His love for you only allowed one avenue. So too for us. To love Christ, to chase after him, there's only one way. And that's through the cross. If your life does not resemble his death, then it is time to correct that. If your calendar does not indict you as a follower of Christ, then today can be the beginning of the rest of your life. If your checkbook does not prove you guilty of chasing after the things of God, then today can be the beginning of the rest of your life. If your confidence, if your boasting is in anything other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, then today can be the beginning of the rest of your life. In the same chapter that Tim read from in the elder prayer, Luke 9, Jesus says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Today, if you will hear his voice, come and die that you should live. Let's pray.